My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. It's simple. Kill the Batman. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Well, hello and welcome to this, the second BBFC podcast. Uh, my name is James Blatch, back with you, and my new co-presenter for this month is Caitlin O'Brien. Hi, James. Hello, Caitlin. Another one of the film examiners here at the board. Um, thank you very much for those of you who got in touch after our first podcast. We had some really nice comments, which was quite encouraging. Hopefully give everybody some useful information about some of the decisions we've been making. We do film classifying very professionally, and we will try and do podcasting uh, uh, to the same rigorous standards. Um, as always, let's start with a little recap of what's in the news, some film classification-related uh, news stories that are flying around at the moment. And the first thing we probably need to mention is a film called The Human Centipede 2. Uh, most people will, will have heard of this film. It got quite a lot of publicity. Uh, it's a sequel to a film about a mad scientist who wanted to sew people together to work out if humans would work in the same way that a centipede does. The sequel is the same idea, but done from a completely different perspective of somebody who is inspired by the first film and wants to make it become a reality. Um, the board took the unusual step, and it is unusual, about, well, we get about 15,000 works submitted a year, and one or two uh, may get recommended for rejection. In this case, this was one, so we recommended rejection. However, um, before a formal appeal by the company, we did come to an accommodation with the distributor and made, I think, 32 cuts, totaling a little over two and a half minutes, and the film has gone out with an 18 certificate. Uh, we can talk in more detail about that because we're going to be chatting to David Cook, the director of the BBFC, and get uh, from the horse's mouth exactly what occurred with Human Centipede 2 in a few moments. But let's mention Modern Warfare 3, one of the big video games of the year. Uh, this is the Call of Duty franchise. I think it's number eight from memory now, Modern Warfare 3, the third in the, uh, what used to be Infinity Ward, the developer's been uh, changed for this one. Now, this has made the news because initially at the time of classification, we anticipated, because there's one sequence set in, uh, in London, particularly on the Tube in London, and we anticipated that some people would draw a parallel with the real world 7-7 uh, seven, seven bombings uh, here in the city. We gave the video game an 18 uh, for adults only to start off with, and then we made it clear that there was actually not a strong parallel to be drawn beyond the fact that it's set on the tube. This is not a terrorist incident. It's more like a, a Soviet-style invasion of Britain and uh, a running and gunning uh, race through the city that happens to include some tube action. Um, things have developed, though. In the last couple of days, Keith Vaz... Um, uh, a Leicester MP has tabled a, an EDM, an early day motion, in the Commons, uh, describing the game uh, in very strong terms, saying that harrowing scenes in a London underground station that's bombed by terrorists, uh, bearing what he describes as a remarkable resemblance to the tragic events of the 7th of July. So he has drawn that parallel. There's been a counter motion from Tom Watson, a uh, backbench MP, who said that uh, he hasn't yet played this this. Cod, but he's going to play it over the Christmas break, and that he supports the 18 from the BBFC. But we, I think, always knew, as did the distributor who brought the game to us for an advice viewing before formal classification, that Modern Warfare 3 would attract some attention. I should say that you are on the games team with us, Caitlin, and um, you missed out on a fishing game this week, I can tell you. But, uh, so I hear, yeah. I, I hear it got quite competitive at one stage. It did get very competitive. We get a range of games submitted, but it's the first time I've had, I've spent several hours fishing, crab fishing in the North Atlantic on a video game. 
Now, swearing is in the news this week um, because naughty Len Goodman on Strictly Come Dancing has got himself in trouble, or the BBC in a bit of trouble, because he described Craig Revel Horwood, a fellow judge, as a silly little sod. It's attracted a lot of complaints, and I think chiefly because it's a big primetime show with a big family following. These are the sorts of things that we do pay attention to. We read these articles, read the response to them, um, and try and help inform our decision-making on where words go. And we have published guidelines that specifically refer to the F word and the C word and how we deal with them. But we have unpublished policy, which helps us as examiners, where we have quite a list of words and generally what category they get placed at. Uh, but it's quite interesting, isn't it, to see how other organisations deal with these issues. It's fascinating. And it's something that seems to change quite a lot as well, or it changes depending on what part of the country you're in, you know, how strongly um, different words are perceived or how, how offensive they're determined to be by different people. Um, I always think it's interesting when you talk to people who do similar jobs to us in other countries in Europe, they always think it's amusing that in Britain we pay so much attention to language and strong language and that this is... Um, such a big deal in this country, not just at BBFC, but obviously in news stories you've mentioned, it's it's an issue in general, and the, the rest of Europe find that a, yes. a curious British thing. Yes, I had a conversation with a German um, examiner from the USK, the Games Board in Germany, and they were bewildered by <laughs> the fact that we would put a category up because of language, but it is a big issue, and parents in particular get very upset about their children being exposed to strong language. Yeah, it's something that, that genuinely has the potential to, to cause offence here, and obviously that's why we bear it in mind uh, as a classification issue, particularly at the junior categories when you're thinking about films that have been targeted at a family audience, and you're very aware that although the children watching it might have heard those words before, there's a big difference between that and them being exposed to those words, particularly if it's in a context where it seems like they're being encouraged to use them or it's okay to speak to people like that. That's the sort of thing that parents complain to us about. Yeah, and again, context is everything. I was thinking the other day, actually, that we we allow a limited amount of, uh, of strong language at the 12A category, none below that. Um, and we obviously had this this incident with Maiden Dagnum and the King's Speech, which got quite a lot of publicity. But again, context, I was wondering what would happen if they put a use of the F word in, for instance, a Harry Potter or parts of the Caribbean film. Now, these are 12A films, massively watched by children. What would we do? Because under our guidelines, we routinely pass the F word at 12A, but actually I think that would have a massive potential for offence because it would be unexpected and the context doesn't really mitigate it. It'd be very interesting <laughs> if, if, if such a thing should happen, but I suspect it wouldn't. No, well, Harry Potter's now finished. <laughs> so, well, yeah, we're safe with that one. It's not going to happen there. Okay, that's our news items. Before we hear from David Cook to talk about Human Centipede 2, let's have a quick look at the films that are out and about at the moment, those that have a notable film classification uh, aspect to them. And Twilight Saga, Breaking Dawn Part 1. So, for fans, what was it you were saying earlier? You have to be in Team... You have to decide whether you're in Team Edward or Team Jacob, but well, frankly, yes. James, you should have decided by now. Yeah. <laughs> well, like I said, I quite like Wolves, so I might go Team Jacob on that one. Um, I'm going to mention this film because... It's aimed at a teen audience. The books have been very popular. The films are very popular worldwide. Uh, it's already getting very good box office numbers, um, getting good results, and it's attracting complaints. We've had a handful of complaints into the building. I shall be drafting a reply in the next few days to those. And that's chiefly... Well, actually, we thought at the time, as did the director, as did the MPAA, 
at the US version of the BBFC, that it would be the sex scene that attracted complaints. And this is because uh, Edward and Bella get married, they go on honeymoon, and they consummate their marriage. And there's an implication during that period that uh, the sex between them is, is rough and it's dangerous for Bella. And this is obviously a particular problem when you marry a vampire, and is dealt with uh, in the film. But it's toned down the MPAA, and we saw the film on advice. We both asked for some changes to be made if the film was to be accommodated at 12 and Those changes were made to the sex scene. I can tell you, though, having flicked through the complaints that have come in, that only one person has mentioned the sex scene as a complaint, and nearly everybody else concerning themselves with the later scene, where, and this, uh, I have to warn you, there's a spoiler alert here if you haven't seen the film yet, but Bella gives birth, and this is a quite dramatic and, again, potentially dangerous uh, uh, process for Bella to go through, and it's quite bloody and it's quite gory. Uh, and at 12A, we allow for moderate violence, and there's a caveat, again, going back to context that runs all the way through our guidelines, which is that a fantasy setting, i.e. one that's not the real world, does give us more scope for including stronger violence. That's true, and also with something like this, there's a particular difficulty, if you like, in placing it within our guidelines, because it's not, strictly speaking, violence. You know, there might be blood and gore, but in a scene of childbirth, albeit, you know, vampire childbirth, yeah. um, it's not the same as somebody being attacked. Um, so it's hard to know somewhere exactly where to place that kind of imagery when we're thinking about which part of the guidelines it, it best gels with. Yeah, and it's worth saying that we do draw a distinction between aftermath violence and violence that's inflicted on somebody. And so when a, a scene like this, and again, I'm using the word violence, we are quite right, Caitlin, this is not traditional violence, it's gore more than anything else. But you can, we get a lot of TV, uh, previous TV episodes through, particularly the US CSI type series. And there is an allowance for stronger images if it's not being inflicted at the time, i.e. a mortuary scene or a crime scene afterwards. If we saw the infliction, that would certainly not be accommodated at that level. And I think the way this scene is, is portrayed, you actually don't see a huge amount of detail, but you do see quite a lot of gore as aftermath. Yeah, I think it's interesting you compare the, the way we handle this to CSI as well, because I think it has another similarity in that. Um, CSI and that type of police procedure or forensic procedure is, is such a well-known quantity. People know what to expect from it. They know the level of detail that they're going to get from that. And it, in another way, I think, you know, Twilight Saga, people going to see these films, a huge number of them know what to expect from the story and they know that this is a key plot point, which is quite um, viscerally described in the books. So I, I think there's a, a certain amount of audience expectation there as well. A very Harold and Kumar 3D Christmas is a film that, if people have seen any of the Harold and Kumar films, they can immediately picture uh, what this is going to be like. These are basically stoner movies. Harold and Kumar smoke a lot of weed, a lot of marijuana is consumed, and in this film, huge amounts of drugs are taken through the film, uh, including by a baby. But one of the important mitigating factors, even though this film did go to 18, uh, is the fact that it is a comedy, not meant to be taken too seriously. But our drugs policy is quite firm, and we do say in our guidelines that films may not promote and encourage the use of drugs, actually, in any category. Uh, this film had a difficult ending for us in terms of classification, and it's the reason it's an 18 and not a 15, is that ultimately you do need to see some arc of story that shows that using illegal drugs 
is not a good thing if it's going to be accommodated at lower categories. And a film that doesn't put so much emphasis on that, I mean, there can't be that many people who see Harold and Kumar and think, yeah, I want that lifestyle. So there is a, there is a, <laughs> a sort of foundation of, um, of, of condemnation, if you like, of, of that uh, lifestyle of taking the drugs. But it wasn't explicit, and in actual fact, it almost endorses it towards the end. It comes close to that line that would be a problem for us, but it was enough to mean that the film was at 18 rather than 15. But if you're interested in how the drugs policy works, I think that's a good film to watch and to understand the difference between drugs at 15 and at 18. Absolutely, and, and so often when we're looking at drugs as an issue in films, and um, you know, sort of traditional portrayal of a drug user in a film, they'll be the baddie. Yeah. Um, whereas obviously in Harold and Kumar films, Harold and Kumar are quite affable guys who you're rooting for throughout the film, so it's, it's a, a different take on it. You wait till you see what they did to Father Christmas. <laughs> well, they're, they're trying to help him afterwards. Uh, I'm going to very briefly mention um, The Iron Lady, which we've had in for classification. Uh, that's not due for release until the new year. It's the biopic of Margaret Thatcher, of course, uh, already getting plaudits from the critics for Mel Streep's performance. Um, and this is uh, a film that went to 12A almost exclusively for violent images. We're going to talk about violence in more detail uh, later. Uh, these were flashbacks to things like the poll tax riots and to uh, some IRA atrocities, including in Brighton and the Hyde Park bombings. And the images uh, were surprisingly strong, actually. The poll tax riots, there was some footage I can't remember seeing before of people being mown down by police horses uh, marching through. Just stuff that would be upsetting at PG. There's also uh, a brief image of two topless women celebrating the return home of the troops uh, from the Falklands War, all of which added up to a 12A. I'm glad you've explained what the um, nudity was, because yeah. the consumer advice this contains real images of moderate violence, injury detail and nudity. It's slightly alarming when you don't know yeah. exactly what nudity is going to be. I thought, and there's always, you do, if you do want to know more detail about the classification issues, you can go to bbfc.co.uk, search on the film you're interested in, and you'll get what we call the ECI, Extended Classification Information. And there's a, there's a few paragraphs there explaining in some detail why a particular film has a particular classification. Right, our feature interview for this podcast, it's with David Cook, the director. And I wanted to talk to him about Human Centipede 2, the way it was dealt with. Uh, as I said earlier, it was a film that we rejected initially, then worked with the distributor to come to an accommodation. That is an unusual position. And uh, so I popped into the oak panelled office on the second floor here at 3 Soho Square uh, to talk to him. Well, I'm here with the boss with the BBFC director uh, in his office, where I have to say there's a lot of work going on in Soho Square, so we may be interrupted <laughs> by some drilling at some point. Uh, oh, it's very good to join you, James, and let's keep our fingers crossed about the noise. For the noise. Well, let's talk about what's been the big story for the BBFC over the summer. That's Human Centipede 2. This is a horror movie, a sequel. I think people are probably familiar with the, uh, the film by now. But I'm interested in, in what happened, because it took an unusual path through the organisation. Can you just take, it take us through it? Mm, yeah, it probably makes most sense if I, if I run you through the story, James. We um, considered it very carefully in May and June, and um, we couldn't really see a way to cut it that would deal with the difficulties we had, though we did try. Uh, I remember us doing this, and I remember thinking that the result didn't quite do the trick. Um, we didn't take the view that the film was completely uncuttable, so we left it open to the distributor to try. But what um, actually happened next 
uh, wasn't a big surprise, the distributor lodged an appeal. This is to the Video Appeals Committee, which is an independent tribunal. So then we roll forward to September, and I remember this quite clearly because I was still on holiday at the time, and um, the distributor came to us with an offer to make some limited cuts. Now that um, changed the picture. We were busily preparing for the appeal at that stage, but we were obliged to consider that um, proposal very carefully and fairly, so we did. And the upshot was that eventually we produced uh, a longer list of cuts of our own. Uh, and there were then some further exchanges and eventually the distributor accepted our list. So having started in a position where uh, our first attempt at making cuts had not really satisf satisfied us, uh, we did eventually produce a considerably longer list. and. Um, that led to a position where we were, in the end, able to award a certificate. Perhaps you can explain how, I think the cuts amounted to about two and a half minutes, mm. how that amount of cutting mm. can make a difference in a film that's rejected and passed. Yeah, well, I, I won't go into all the detail in a, <laughs> in a family show, but um, the thing that I think is worth understanding is that although um, 2 minutes 37 seconds doesn't sound very long, that actually comprises 32 cuts, depending on how exactly you count, it's about 32. And they range across quite a number of scenes, and um, they really did make a difference. And in particular, I think this is the key thing for us, the cuts removed any possibility that the work might be found to be obscene and therefore was breaking the law. Um, and they also removed all the key elements which we believed posed a possible harm risk. So that, that was the crucial thing. Um, they actually did deal with all the issues. Well, let me put a couple of points to you. One mm. is there was quite uh, an internet campaign, as you might expect, mm. and horror fans particularly who weren't pleased with the decision. Ultimately, did you bow to them? No, I don't think so. Um, what we do is um, we always listen very carefully to groups who are commenting on a particular issue or uh, film. And um, we, we did monitor what they were saying on a daily basis. So, you know, we certainly paid attention. But at the end of the day, our decision has got to be based on a number of things, you know, it's got to be based on the law, it's got to be based on our assessment of whether something is harmful or not. But the, the key thing is that we classify for the broad public. So that's what we're, we're always doing. Um, and, you, you know, that was what we did in this case as well. And not everyone agreed with the decision, including one significant player in the event within the building. That's one of the vice presidents who yeah. publicly abstained. Yes. Um, now, I don't think that's that surprising in a way. In, in the very hardest cases, the final decision is taken by a mysterious thing called the Board of Classification. And what, what that actually means is the president, the two vice presidents, and me. And one of the, the vice presidents abstained. Um, and it, it's a phenomenon that you see in very hard cases. For instance, when um, one of our... Um, video submission does go to appeal to the Video Appeals Committee, you quite often get um, 
a majority vote or a split vote in the Video Appeals Committee. So, for instance, in the Manhunt 2 case, the split there was 4-3 in, in the Video Appeals Committee. So I, it's not that surprising, I think, that you, you, know, you don't necessarily get complete unanimity in a very difficult case. Um, the age-old question, which I know you, you wrestle with sometimes, is the fact that you end up giving a lot of publicity to a film that you may at the beginning have wanted to reject. Mm, mm. Well, we you know, have to do what's right in accordance with our guidelines and in, in accordance with our, our legal obligations. Um, sometimes our decisions do attract publicity, um, but that's, you know, that, that's just kind of inherent to the process. Uh, and we can't let that distort what we do. So um, at the end of the day, we have to do what we think is the right thing. I'd like to ask you a broader question about this. I think some people will be surprised because they might imagine the relationship between the BBFC and the filmmaker is quite sometimes an antagonistic one. You reject a film, they go through appeals, mm. it's all very formal. But actually what happened here was quite a cooperative process in the background. Um, can you just explain how, you know, how closely we do sometimes work with distributors? I think in this case it was a game changer when the um, distributor came to us in September and said they were prepared to contemplate cuts. That um, I think was quite significant. Now the, the, this relationship is one which varies in, enormously from case to case. Um, I get cross when people say that we're in the pockets of the film industry because I genuinely don't think that's true. In some cases it is very clear that um, there can't be any question of um, making cuts to a particular film because either the director or whoever it may be is just not open to that at all and that's perfectly fair. In other cases the distributor will come to us in advance and actually seek a formal advice viewing and we'll give advice and say, well, this is what you need to do in order to achieve whatever certificate it is that you're, you're after. And um, sometimes the distributor will say, um, no, that's really not possible. And sometimes they'll say, yep, we can, we can make those changes. So, you know, we try to be um, clear and predictable and transparent. We're not... Um, you know, just trying to make life difficult for distributors just for the sake of it, because obviously, you know, they invest a lot of uh, effort and, and money in their film, and um, they're very keen to see it do well. David, thank you very much indeed. I, I see you, you sit around here waiting, or well, you work very hard, I'm sure, but you also <laughs> kind of wait for these controversies to come along. It's events, dear boy, events, isn't it? You never quite know what, um, when and where they're going to come from. What, um, what tends to happen is it's, it's like the dreaded buses. They come yeah. in threes or fours, and um, yes, I mean, in, in this particular instance, we had uh, a, a, another work called The Bunny Game, which is very different, which we did reject, um, and there were some other high-profile cases around at that time, so yes, this clustering phenomenon is very familiar to me. Well, from the podcast point of view, we're going to be like a vulture that just swoops <laughs> in whenever you're struggling and... <laughs> Um, in the midst of it all, we'll come in and find out the, uh, the inside line. Thank you're, you. You're thank always welcome. <laughs> David, thank you. Thank you. David Cook, director of the BBFC, talking to me a little earlier about Human Centipede 2. Right, let's talk about violence.
long before man roamed these lands, there was a war in heaven. The victors declared themselves gods, while the vanquished were renamed Titans and forever imprisoned within the bowels of Mount Tartarus. King Hyperion and his legions seek to unleash the Titans and wage war upon this world. I will end the reign of the gods. If there is one human who could lead them against Hyperion, it would be Theseus. Well, they were the ancient Greeks doing battle, particularly bloody and gruesome battle on occasions in Immortals, which is doing the rounds in the cinemas at the moment. Now, that's a film that came into us for an advice screening, and it's one that got revised down from an 18 to a 15, and you can read a little bit more about that process on our website. And the difference between 15 and 18 is one of the areas we're going to look at. But before we get there, let's go to the junior categories and start at U and PG. And Caitlin, violence, when you say violence, people automatically perhaps think of Pulp Fiction or The Immortals uh, in cinema at the moment. But actually, a lot of our time is, is concerned with how violence is depicted through the categories. And it's very much a feature of children's films, isn't it? Well, of course. I mean, we don't have sort of any particular issues that are confined to just the higher categories. You can have a portrayal of violence at U or PG, but obviously only if it's presented in a way that's suitable for much younger viewers. So, yeah, of course, it occurs in U and PG films. And what we say um, at you is that violence may be mild only, occasional mild threat or menace only. And I think one of the stronger you films, I should just say by the way that police helicopters are hovering just outside our window, <laughs> it's quite noisy here in central London at, at various times of the day. Um, I think one of the stronger you films we've had in recent years was Toy Story 3. Uh, there was a conflation of threat to the characters in that scene. Uh, which was exacerbated, I think, by the fact that we are very familiar and very fond with these characters, having seen them over the three films. Um, and yet, there were also some reassuring elements in the sort of things that we look for at you, which is the resourcefulness of the characters. What do we mean by that, Caitlin? Well, do the characters seem scared by what's happening, um, or do they remain quite upbeat and positive throughout and you get this quite often in, in kids films where the, the main character is a child there might be all sorts of frightening things going on around them but they remain quite um, positive and able to cope with it and, and that helps enormously. To go up to PG requires a step up from where we are with films like Toy Story and another recent example of that is an, another animated film actually from Disney which is Bolt. Now this is the story of a dog um, that thinks it's a superhero because it plays a superhero in a TV series. And the reason that film went to PG was because of quite a sustained sequence of a film set burning down and a period of threat to the main characters of Bolt and his owner. And yeah, how long a scene goes on is also something we take into account at the junior categories, isn't it? Absolutely. It's even specifically referred to in our guidelines where at you it says um, scary sequences should be mild, brief and unlikely to cause undue anxiety to young children. So as soon as something starts to go on for a bit too long, you're not getting that quick resolution where everybody's shown to be OK again. That's the point where we start thinking maybe this is really going into the PG category. 
And we look for things that we, we call, we have lots of phrases in this building, one of them is reassuring counterbalances. And we expect to see that in you and, uh, and even PG films to an extent that a, a threat to a character doesn't go on so long that the viewer, the young child, starts to become seriously concerned that they're going to end up in trouble from this. They want to see a resolution quite quickly, whereas in a 12 and 15 film you can have periods of sustained threat. Yeah, in a 12 or 15 film you might have that threat sort of not resolved until towards the end of the film where the story arc comes to an end, but in films for much younger children um, they need that reassurance much more quickly. They're, they're not going to remember all the way to the end of the film. They'll, they'll start to worry about the characters in between. That's a big difference between the films for much younger children and slightly older ones. It is, and we, allow, um, we do allow some limited amount of moderate violence at PG, uh, which we essentially think is sort of the 8 to 12 year old bracket, um, provided there is some mitigation. We set this out in the guidelines uh, referring to, for example, history, comedy or fantasy. Johnny English Reborn is out at PG and um, there's quite a lot of violence in it, some, some quite prolonged martial arts sequences and things in fact, but very, very clearly comic, lots of slapstick. And so where some of the martial arts moves might be stronger in a, in a serious context, in this particular context, um, it's obvious that nobody's really getting hurt. Now going up to 12 and 12a, now I said just now that you could have periods of threats that are longer at 12 and 15, but actually there is a marker in our guidelines. We do specifically talk about a sustained period of threat may be something that takes a film from 12 to 15. An example of that, Caitlin, is Disturbia. Yes, in which the sort of teenage protagonist um, is confined to his bedroom and can see sort of threatening things happening outside and there becomes an increased sense of threat as to what's going to happen to him. He's incapacitated. It's a, like a sort of teenage um, version of Rear Window in that sense. And the reason uh, I mention it is a film actually got a PG-13, which is the equivalent of our 12A uh, by, in the States from the MPAA, but we took it to 15, and it might be a difference between the MPAA and us. It's taking account of the effects, the impact on the viewer of when threat is sustained and it goes on for a long period of time without resolution. Uh, we're still talking 12A is not a restricted category, only in so much as you need to be accompanied in the cinema, and we are still talking about a, you know, a tweeny category, I suppose, is the modern sense of it. And when it becomes a more serious real-world setting, that's an indicator that the film can go to 15. Yeah, as with so many issues, the, the more realistic the presentation is, the, the more potentially problematic it can be. And then I feel there's a bit of a jump to 15, a fully restricted category in the cinema and on video. It's illegal to buy or rent them if you're under the age of 15. And we do allow for strong violence. And 15, I think, is quite a broad category in that sense, in that... Uh, for instance, a bullet impact with a blood spurt in it is unlikely to be accepted at 12, enough to take a film into what we describe as a low-end 15, but a 15, of course, is a 15. At the other end of the category, you get films like the remake of The Omen, where there's a decapitation in it, The Immortals, which is in cinemas at the moment, which we heard from uh, a little while ago, where you get quite a sustained period of bloodletting and gore, Again, The Immortals is an example where we'd look for some mitigation to accommodate that level of violence, and we have it in that sense, because it's a fantastical film. Yeah, again, it's, it's to do with this real-world thing, isn't it? Anything that's, that's real is going to seem much more horrific, whereas if there is a clear sort of fantasy setting, um, that makes things seem less strong, or you certainly are much more aware while you're watching it that this is not really happening. And Kellen, 
Explain how a film goes from 15 to 18 under guidelines when it comes to violence. Well, the guidelines um, state that violence may be strong but should not dwell on the infliction of pain or injury at 15. It also goes on to say that um, strong sadistic or sexualised violence is also unlikely to be acceptable. So you can see there sort of the difference between sort of quite quick action style violence and maybe a torture scenario. Um, the latter being much stronger, having much more emotional impact and therefore more likely to be past 18 rather than 15. And then we also have um, this uh, statement in the guidelines at 15 that the strongest gory images are unlikely to be acceptable. So again, um, particularly in horror works, we'll be looking at the most extreme gory images and um, taking things to 18 rather than 15. And this is an interesting area, I think, uh, when we talk about what you actually see, when we talk about detail, dwelling on the infliction of pain and injury because filmmakers have always used the conceal and reveal the implication of seeing things and a good example I suppose is Reservoir Dogs where people may think they've seen somebody's ear being cut off but of course the camera actually doesn't show that um, but actually that can be stronger because it's playing on your mind and that's what good directors are doing is they're making you fill in the blanks and that can have quite an impact on you. Reservoir Dogs, despite not having that strong detail in it, is a film that went to 18 for violence. And famously Psycho as well. I think you don't actually ever see the knife pierce her skin in the shower scene, but everybody always thinks they have because it's, it's so emotionally effective when you watch the sequence. That has quite a strong impact on you. Um, so I suppose that's a good uh, place to end it when we talk about that detail. People often wonder what takes a film from 15 to 18. Thank you very much indeed for downloading the podcast and having a listen. Do keep your comments coming. Podcast at bbfc.co.uk. That's been our whistle-stop tour of violence uh, through the guidelines and uh, I hope it gives you a bit of an insight into how things work inside this building. So until next time from us, goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.